Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Very nicely done, Lincoln and Shannon. Thank you. I just suggest we take it to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, open our hearts that we would see what you have for us today, that your word would speak, not man, but your word, and uh, that you would be glorified. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the encouragement, uh, the grace that you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are, folks, in Acts chapter 2 again. I'll ask you to turn your Bibles there. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Here, what we see is uh, Scripture continues to describe the, the aftermath of having, uh, the, the aftermath that occurred amongst those who had continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and continually devoted themselves to one another. And this sincere, intimate fellowship, last week we learned the Greek word for that is koinonia, uh, this sincere, intimate fellowship includes the breaking of bread. I, for one, uh, will admit that I am a fan of feasting. I really appreciate that Christianity has at the center of its uh, doctrine uh, a major element of the Christian faith, uh, feasting, feasting. Uh, eating is like no other event. It occurs, nobody gets left out. Uh, it occurs every day, you can't get around it, and uh, everyone needs nourishment, so, so food kind of surpasses every other form of entertainment. Sports, you can take it or leave it. Camping, ah, too many bugs. But dinner is for everyone. And uh, it definitely is an occasion that we can all take serious together. The activity of dining together also reflects lives that are shared in common. Lives shared with one another. It's no surprise that our Lord Jesus used bread and wine. They were two of the most common table elements in ancient Israel. And he used them to symbolize our sharing in the new covenant. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And that imagery of inclusion and that simplicity in the Lord's Supper, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So in memorializing his atoning death, for our sins and, and resurrection from the dead, uh, and by using elements that were already present in the Passover meal, Jesus, he, he didn't deploy anything new or unusual. Additionally, it helps that you can either seat a few dozen people or a few thousand people together and efficient, efficiently distribute the bread and the cup it's so easy it can be done anywhere. Yet, such a commonality, such, such a regular everyday occurrence might have also contributed, contributed to a misunderstanding in Corinth that led to so many problems. Uh, yet even though, and even through their misconduct, uh, we are trained by the Apostle Paul, we're, we're trained to, to distinguish between, well, just eating and eating. Between breaking bread and breaking bread. Uh, praise God for the explanation by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, or, or Christians could end up all over the map on this. Before we departed last Sunday, I offered a comment about how in verse 42, the breaking of bread and prayer, they're grammatically nestled underneath fellowship. Grammatically nestled together uh, for fellowship. Numerous Greek scholars tell us that the grammar lends 
the grammar lends to our recognizing uh, these last two, breaking of bread and prayer, as elements of fellowship. Elements of koinonia, meaning that, that this breaking of bread, in verse 42, this particular breaking of bread is to be shared corporately, when, when everyone is together and present. Also, the prayers mentioned in verse 42, if you play, pay close attention, uh, they are correctly represented in the English Standard Version uh, as the prayers. There, there is a definite article there in the original Greek. Uh, most likely, verse 42 does not refer to individual prayers, which, which we do by ourselves, but the prayers. The prayers meaning formal prayers and corporate prayers that are verbalized when all members of the body are together. It's, it's the prayers. Indispensable elements of any corporate gathering must include, well, scriptural, apostolic teaching, committed fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Churches might mix in some other components as well. You'll have welcome announcements. There may be a reciting of common doctrine together. Sometimes that's referred to as creeds in written format. Uh, there'll probably be published creeds that are sung in harmony to a tune, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, no getting around it. Uh, some, some will say, you know, I, I just I won't go to a creedal church. So I don't want to recite creeds. Uh, we're just against that. And I'll ask them, well, do you sing? They'll say, well, yeah. Well, those are basically creeds and words written by man as well. You just put a tune to them. So, so the anti-creedal movement doesn't, doesn't really get a lot of traction. There, there are lots of important contributions to, to our experience together on Sundays. But without the Fab Four, without the four of verse 42, uh, you simply don't do not constitute corporate worship in a local church. You have to have these present as elements. Yet, yet even with all that we share together on Sunday morning, a participation and a presence essential to sustaining a local church, uh, when we climb into our cars afterwards and, and drive away, the koinonia doesn't end, folks. The koinonia does not end. The fellowship doesn't end. The intimacy does not end. Uh, Sunday morning is not where we punch in and and punch out with our time cards. Uh, No, in fact, it appears in our passage that, that that a passionate pursuit of loving friendships is what we are observing, uh, and they become vital to growth as the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Let's read together beginning in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Foundational doctrines of the Christian faith foundational beliefs hinge upon loving relationships that assemble together on the Lord's Day and also continue to be nurtured place to place. Uh, Knowing this can, can help us conclude why so many professing Christians say that they are lonely. 
And, and orientation, membership orientation we talked about last week. Uh, one of the things I normally state an opening, at the opening moments is, it's time to stop being lonely, folks. The church is for, for you so you don't have to be lonely through this walk on earth. I'm going to begin today's passage by deferring verse 43 until next Sunday. And that is because in chapter 3, we're going to receive a, a concrete example of the nature of these miracles. Signs, wonders, they're performed by the apostles, and there exist distinguishable characteristics of miracles that validate them as actually being miracles. But let me just state uh, in preparation for, for next week that there surely was a sense of awe, a, a sense of awe among them because the nature of the miracles was so undeniably supernatural. You couldn't make them up. But it is inaccurate at the same time to conclude that the church observed numeric growth due to miracles. That's not accurate. Numeric growth has already been credited at Pentecost as a result of preaching the gospel. And as the church continued to preach the word, as Peter did at Pentecost, the word day by day the Lord was adding to their number. The miracles fulfilled a purpose, but their purpose was not evangelism. We'll talk about that more next week. We should also be willing to recognize, it's important to acknowledge, that spiritual rebirth that is displayed in, in the lives of genuine believers, that, that rebirth displayed practically uh, by early Christians made life very attractive. Made it very attractive to as many, uh, verse 39 says, as the Lord will call to himself. And verse 44 reads, And those who had believed, revealing these had faith, those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. To properly interpret this, this statement, uh, we need to start at the end. What are the last five words of verse 45? As anyone might have need. The antecedent, or what's being pointed at with the word anyone, it initially points to all who had believed, surely, this is categorically Christians, but these anyones are further qualified. The church was supplying not individual wants, but needs. We are going to receive a truckload of further instruction, advanced instruction, actually graduate level instruction, a truckload of it uh, later in further apostolic teaching on the topic. But, but please recognize the needs of people in this day were very basic. Very basic. Uh, Paul will later write, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8. Um, so basic food and covering is what people need. There exists today uh, quite a bit of liberty uh, uh, quite a bit of, uh, of freedom in exercising benevolent giving and defining needs is um, admittedly a little more complex today. We, we need to admit that. Uh, but Christians have never inherited a scriptural obligation to provide every vagrant in the world, even every other Christian, what they don't need. Notice again, these, uh, these qualified as those who believed. They first shared faith. Uh, then they shared koinonia on the Lord's Day. They were part of the church. 
that continued even beyond Sunday. Actually, a point I should make as well, uh, just thinking this morning again that uh, it was brought to my attention uh, last week, just having a, a word with someone that uh, this is Sunday, folks. The day of Pentecost fell on the first day of the week. They didn't call it Sunday in that day, uh, but Pentecost was, it occurred, it fell on the first day of the week. The, the, the first preaching of the gospel by Peter, the, the Holy Spirit's work fell on Pentecost at first, uh, on what we would call Sunday, and, and Pentecost was a feast the celebrated first fruits in Israel. It was the first fruits feast. So Pentecost uh, itself was, was in recognition of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That, that occurred on a Sunday. Uh, notice again, they qualified as those who believed. They shared the faith. Uh, they shared the fellowship on the Lord's day. And then they shared what they possessed with the brethren who had legitimate basic needs, human needs. Uh, I have a tough time putting gas into somebody's uh, latest generation C8 Corvette. I, I struggle with that a little bit. Um, but I may actually fill that tank for them to help them get to work, uh, if they agree it is probably time to trade that bad boy in for a chivet. Um, when, when our needs arise, when, when our needs arise, and every one of us will have needs that need to be met by the local church, but when, we, when our needs arise, we, we first simplify, if it's, if it's an opportunity for us to do so. And if your hobbies or your domesticated pets are driving you into bankruptcy to where you cannot pay your own electric bill, folks, uh, uh, or, or buy your own prescriptions, our first instinct is not to burden the church of Christ, uh, but to adjust our behavior or our hobbies in some way. Um, locally, by the grace of God, I, I don't know why we don't suffer like many regions in the world, but locally here, we don't have a huge problem with Christian poverty. Uh, we, we usually can get a brother or a sister uh, back up on their feet, back to work fairly quickly by the grace of God, uh, because, we, because we, we really don't need a lot to be happy. We really don't. We don't need a lot of possessions to live happily. And folks, we generally have so much already. But we will extend a helping hand to get a brother and sister uh, or sister uh, back on their feet. But we also need to recognize the cultural context of this passage. Um, people in ancient Jerusalem... And in the early church, they lived very simply, very simple lives. Uh, so this small segment represented uh, people who couldn't meet their own basic human needs. Uh, th this small segment who didn't have basic food and covering as needed, they were truly indigent. They, they couldn't help themselves uh, Therefore, 3,000 Christians at Pentecost, filled by the Holy Spirit and compassion, they rallied to provide for that comparatively small number amongst them who could not provide for themselves a basic human essentials. Uh, people gave to one another what they needed. We'll see an example in chapter 6 when we get there, uh, of, uh, of a sharing of daily food. That'll come in chapter 6. The late Stanley Toussaint, uh, he was a beloved professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, he wrote a commentary on this. He says, uh, he explains, this was, quote, not socialism or communism because it was voluntary, 
He's going to use a couple examples later as well in, in Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 4. He continues to say, also, their goods were not evenly distributed, but were given to meet needs as they arose. Ben Witherington III, who we've heard quite a bit from over the past couple of years, a theologian, uh, he says, quote, the imperfect verb tense here suggests this was not a one-time occurrence, uh, but rather a recurrent past practice, presumably undertaken whenever need arose. Verses 44 and 45, he writes, do not at all suggest what we would call communism or, or some sort of system where there was no such thing as private property. Uh, rather, what is described here is that no one was claiming any exclusive right to whatever property he or she had. And when need arose, the early Christians readily liquidated what assets they had to take care of fellow believers' needs, unquote. As I alluded to a little bit earlier, a Christian understanding of benevolence. Well, it increases exponentially as we read further into Acts and further into the New Testament, uh, the balance of the apostolic teaching that we have. Uh, but notice what our passage does not say. It does not say they sold everything they owned, uh, nor that they didn't maintain any private ownership of, of properties or private homes. Uh, we know from the balance of Scripture they actually did maintain those things. Uh, Christians surely do. Uh, rather, they treated things as if they're not their own. Uh, they treated everything that they had not as it belonged to themselves, but and not as though it belonged to everybody else but as if it belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. They viewed not even their life as their own, uh, but treated everything as if it belongs to the Lord who saved them from their sins. Uh, that is how they shared all things in common. They didn't give up ownership or private property rights. Uh, this is good theology for every Christian we should, therefore, share our things as if Christ needed them. We should share as if everything we have belongs to Christ. And it's only after this attitude of commonality is established amongst the brethren that we are told they sold their, position, their possessions as need arose. Just as I would envision most of us here have, when we became Christians, at whatever point in your life that was, just as most of us have, early Christians in Jerusalem at Pentecost recognized that they had been living materialistically and had acquired too much stuff. So they began to liquidate, they had a big yard sale, I imagine. They began to liquidate so as to lighten their worries and, and imitate the life that was modeled by Christ. That's, that's what they did. They got rid of the baggage. They simply realized, as I hope we all have, yeah, I won't be needing that anymore. Or, or earlier this week, I wrote to myself a clarification on a note. I, I wrote, early Christians were neither pursuing nor anticipating they would achieve the age of Aquarius. If we sell all we own, we'll then alleviate and eliminate world poverty and initiate an age of world peace. That is not at all what is going on here. Uh, that is not what is happening in Acts. Rather, Christians began to recognize the earth and all its works 
are destined to burn when Christ returns. You're not going to take it with you. No way that is going to happen. Uh, And this, this display of love for the poor, display of love for the poor, it resulted from the Holy Spirit's provocation uh, a, a provocation that, that, that this life, it's fleeting. It, 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 we recognize this life is fleeting. It's a transience in our life on earth. It's passing quick. The older you get, the quicker it passes. It's fleeting transience. Christians today, Christians today are still known still known to give to the point of risking even their own impoverishment for the sake of the poor in Christ. They're they're motivated to share in others' poverty. Consider that. They're motivated to, their, their motivation by the Holy Spirit, they're motivated to share with their brothers and sisters' poverty not in their wealth. This is incredibly important for those who have been fooled to think that pooling resources is Scripture's secret formula for all of us to share in prosperity. No, no. Those who give generously are motivated to share in a brother's poverty. Eliminate what I have to join him in his poverty. To, to lower our standard is giving. Pe- people who are willing to divest of this materialistic world in order to invest in Christ. So, so nothing, here, nothing here portrays Christians as demanding an equal share with their wealthier pagan neighbors. Nothing even remotely looks like that at all. Uh, This passage gets so distorted by false teaching, so distorted. No objective here looks even remotely, not even remotely, uh, like forcibly demanding the, you know, King Agrippa and you other social elites in Jerusalem uh, Redistribute your wealth to us Christians. So, so we can increase, so we can increase our standard of living. You will never find that idea of taking what belongs to others in Scripture. Well, wait. Actually, you will. You will. Um, wanting what others have is called covetousness. A love of money is described as idolatry. Uh, amassing fortune to yourself is described as greed. So, so they are in Scripture, but they are not promoted as adjectives to describe Christians. It, it's, it's an abundance of poverty that is supposed to describe Christians. Uh, yeah, we don't seize other people's stuff, especially unbelieving neighbors. Instead, What we observe at Pentecost are Christians who have come to realize they already have too much stuff. Too many clothes, too many cars, uh, too much square footage, too many properties, too many toys. And they seize opportunities to share, again clearly, with fellow Christians who are severely impoverished. Also, what we observe in Acts chapter 2 is, folks, it's Christian behavior. It's not pagan behavior. We would never expect unbelieving pagan neighbors to forcibly comply with behavior that I must be willing to do by an indwelling Spirit of God which they don't possess. Why would I expect? This is no disrespect at all to these two individuals. They don't identify as biblical Christians. They're just very wealthy people. Why would I expect, why would any of us expect Bill Gates 
or Oprah to do what you and I, the elect, indwelt by God, why would we expect them to do what we are so often unwilling to do? Folks, this correction and behavior is for us, not for the world. It's for Christians indwelt by God. Uh, finally, we don't see evidence of Christians selling their businesses through which, through which they need to generate an income. They, they, we don't see it saying that they sold their businesses uh, or that they somehow failed to maintain a private home or residence. Uh, no, they, they sell properties and possessions as needed uh, possessions that they themselves, by their own spirit, have deemed extra, extra stuff. Um, folks, you will never find satisfaction in life wanting what other people have. You will find it in redistributing what you have, categorized by your spirit as life's surplus, vain excess. And the Holy Spirit decides when you give it away. Nobody else determines, as we're going to learn in Acts chapter 4, uh, when you are to give it away. Uh, forced confiscation of assets to redistribute uh, to others. It's not how, ge uh, how Christians generate eternal rewards for pagans. Not going to happen. Folks, this is just honesty. Socialism stinks. It stinks. It's unbiblical. Can't be reconciled with Scripture. Can't be reconciled with biblical Christianity at all. This is important uh, primarily because I, I know some of you young folks are going to be heading off to college here uh, before long. And, and, and that's important because when you run into college, you're going to be looking at a lot of different ideas and thoughts by other people. That, that can be very helpful in ways, but it makes you vulnerable as well. Uh, some of our young people that will be heading off to college, uh, liberation theology, which claims that we should use our Christian virtues. It actually cites this passage very often. That we should use our Christian virtues to lead society in seizing the assets of the rich to forcibly redistribute them to ourselves is a completely false religion based on idolatry and greed. It, it, it looks nothing like Jesus whatsoever. Nothing like Jesus. It's not Christianity. It is a false religion. Be wary of what you learn at college. What people are telling you about the Bible. Um, no, the Holy Spirit does not provoke Christians to divide prosperity with wealthier pagans. Uh, that's completely the opposite of this passage. Completely the opposite. Uh, rather, Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, motivated common everyday Christians to share poverty with other Christians who are poorer than us. That's what Scripture asks, expects. Generosity is what the Holy Spirit generates in us. I don't know. When you, when you really flush this out, I miss Luke. The Gospel of Luke, when we went through that, had so much on giving and Jesus. I'm going to have a quote from Luke in a moment here. Uh, I don't know what scares me more. The prospect of dying uh, 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 the prospect of living poor or dying rich. What I do know, it was never a poor man with empty barns about whom Christ described as a fool. Completely the opposite. Boy, do we, th we, th do we really think as Christians, do we really think that following Jesus in the wealthiest and most, most affluent society that has ever existed on the planet was going to be easy. No, no. While on earth, Jesus called his followers to voluntarily sacrifice 
and he included a promise. This is Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, uh, right after, by the way, the man with the full barns. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. That's the promise. Reward in heaven. And the dawning of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the dawning of the Holy Spirit's ministry at Pentecost reveals that, that early Christians replicated the life that they had seen in Christ and they lived according to what He taught. That's what the Christian, the Holy Spirit does in Christians. Uh, the Holy Spirit replicates the life of Christ in us. Since we don't have a ton of desperately poor Christians in our culture, it doesn't mean they don't exist, but we don't have a ton. Uh, in obedience to this enduring principle, we have established a church budget item uh, called Christian Poverty Relief. Most of you are, are familiar with that. It's primarily, primarily devoted to our, our brothers and sisters in Christ overseas. Uh, a church program is a program, actually a priority, that rises preeminent in the balance of Scripture. You see it everywhere in the epistles, uh, uh, collections being taken to be redistributed uh, for those who are poorer abroad. We made the fund a reality by doubling our missions giving three years ago. I believe, I believe it would greatly please Christ for us to enter a discussion in how we could expand that further. Think about that. As we begin to wind down, um, as I said earlier, sharing with the poor made Christianity really attractive. Uh, as day by day they continued with one mind, and as day by day the Lord was sovereignly adding to their number. Uh, day by day is probably a better understanding than daily or every day. Um, they might have been at the temple daily right at first, initially, but, but if Woodenly interpreted as daily, that, that would have not left a whole lot of time to work and to earn a living and to continue on with life. Um, and how could they move from house to house in a single day and on every single day? That's probably not the meaning there. Day by day is, is better understood to communicate that they displayed a notable consistency. They were consistent in these behaviors, uh, just as verse 42 reveals that they remained devoted to the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread. He, here they also continued with one mind in the temple. That place where they were breaking bread. Even the, break, even the breaking in bread in verse 46, is, it's possibly tied to that same communion uh, at the temple. We, we aren't perfectly sure in this text. Uh, but additionally, and beyond temple gatherings, they also moved, quote, from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness. The, the latter reference there to eating uh, surely is a reference to intimate, ta intimate table fellowship, eating together in homes. Uh, the point is that an intimate fellowship or koinonia is expected to occur at both. At both. Uh, the Temple Mount was the church's initial location. That's where they started, at least until the persecution starts in. Uh, that is the location of the corporate gathering. There, there was ample space uh, in the porticos uh, there at the temple for, for thousands, thousands to gather in one place. And the temple is is where the primary doctrine of the apostles' teaching was established for everybody present and seated together. Everyone is together. The corporate gathering becomes indispensable for keeping everybody on the same theological page. We, we have to be together for that. Equally important, this is in modern day now, equally important is Sunday morning church 
where all ears are seated and listening to the same thing together, corporately, whether that's the 915 study or that is whoever is preaching from the pulpit, uh, that, that we must not forsake the assembly together. Nothing, nothing is hidden when we're together. Pastors, pastors don't mind scrutiny. We, we, we don't. Uh, if there arises a question or concern about what Scripture or what the pastor is teaching, uh, it, it needs to be addressed with all of us present and seated. Always has to be that way. The corporate gathering must include the reading of Scripture, the preaching of the Word, uh, the proclamation of all biblical truth from the Scriptures. In fact, those of you who, are, who enjoy history on the Reformation as... Uh, Luther, uh, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, uh, the, the symbolism they used because the, the Christian faith had been distorted into all tradition. Uh, what the symbol they used at the Reformation, uh, Reformation churches did is, what would they sit down right in front of the pulpit on a, on a table? Do you remember? With the pages flipped open? The Bible. The Bible was left open, and, and that was a symbolism that, that the Word of God is the authority that we submit ourselves to. Uh, it's not mandated. Some churches still do it today. I don't think we even have room down there. I think R.C. Sproul's pulpit didn't it have it carved in wood, something like that to symbolize we submit ourselves to the Word of God. Um, no, this is where all... Biblical truth is, is examined together uh, for that which is true and that which is error. But as, uh, as churches grow, as they grow, yeah, it, it's possible to begin to feel like you're, you're just a number. Yeah, I'm just a number. I'm slipping through the cracks. Uh, or you just don't have an opportunity to share a prayer or a need because there are so many people it's hard to do in a large group. I will hear before church sometimes get, get a word about a couple people that need very specific prayer. Um, but it's hard in a large group. Just think if there's 3,000 seated. Think about that. How could you possibly field all of the personal requests at that one seating? Uh, pretty impossible. At Pentecost, the ratio of members to... Apostles is 250 to 1. And that, that's, that's just starting off. And the Lord kept on adding day by day to their number. They just keep getting bigger and bigger. And at 250 to 1, you know, the apostles can't be in every home group. They, they, they can't be at every dinner. They, they can't be everywhere all the time to teach. And pastors are thankful to know that we don't as well. Everything doesn't hinge on one person or one pastor uh, in order for the church to go and to grow. But there has to be fellowship on the Lord's day, and there has to be fellowship beyond the Lord's day. Meeting house to house in smaller groups, it in increases the intimacy, the uh, opportunity to share with one another, that, that does occur here on the first Wednesday of every month. We meet in home groups for prayer, uh, several different home groups. Uh, that's just one place that you can share needs for prayer, personal encouragement. I'm compelled to believe in our passage at smaller gatherings, house to house. It's where people were able to, to discern what others needed. That's where experiencing needs, uh, those who experience needs are discovered in smaller groups. And uh, that opportunity didn't happen at the temple, not in a large group. No. Uh, additionally, our Wednesday evening family night, which resumes again, we kick it off again this following Wednesday, our Wednesday evening family night allows not only kids club, ages 3 to 11 by the way, Youth group, ages 12 to 18, uh, also those who are older, as, as you heard an announcement earlier, to get together. You can fill out a prayer card. 
got prayer cards on your bulletin and prayer cards on the door. You fill that prayer card out, and it will get prayed for uh, first off by me tomorrow morning, uh, more importantly, by the body of Christ Wednesday evening. And uh, so, please feel free to use those. Actually, I encourage you to, and uh, your needs will be discovered. And people will have the ability to meet your need when it is discovered, and they will become concerned. Maybe your, need, maybe your need's a better job. Maybe, maybe it's a place to live. That's, that's a problem in Port St. Lucie. Uh, maybe you just need a hug. Maybe some close family member or friend has died and you just need a hug. Um, maybe, the, maybe the battery on your Corvette is dead. We, we, we can talk about that. We can talk about that. Down on your luck. Maybe you're just down on your luck. Uh, we can't cover everything on Sunday morning. Uh, Wednesday is wonderful, so I didn't want to rush past Wednesday evening. Uh, but, but even more important than Wednesday evening is food. Yeah, food. In verse 46, from house to house they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Eating together indicates lives shared together. I'm not one who thinks that this indicates that they formally, formally celebrated the Lord's Supper in small groups from house to house. Um, why? Though it could grammatically mean that, it, it, it honestly could. Uh, and that might have occurred in the early church. Um, we received clarification later with the church of Corinth uh, that they were instructed not to do that. The Lord's Supper is it's never to become a sectarian. We're over here. Uh, and, and we're not to exclude one another, but rather communion, the Lord's Supper, is to be inclusive. Paul writes, we are to wait for one another. For everybody to show up. In our earlier scripture reading, we're nearly done. In our earlier scripture reading, the Apostle Paul writes, When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He didn't say that's not what they should be doing. He said, no, that's not what your motive is. Paul means your motive is wrong. You're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. Their motive is wrong. How? He says, in, eat, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. It indicates that, that they started you know, taking their meals separately. So, so, they, so they, were no, no longer, they were no longer gathering for the Lord's Supper. They were just gathering for supper. And Paul's response is, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Paul, Paul was a tough guy. He cut right to the chase. Boy, I wish we could invite him as a guest speaker. Huh? <laughs> that, that must have been great. Any of the apostles, uh, to have them, wow. Paul then goes on to define eating the Lord's Supper as a memorial of Christ's suffering. And that's exactly what we commemorate together here, the Lord's Supper together. If you stay, if you stay afterwards next week, we'll have some more supper in the other building. Uh, Paul's conclusion is, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. It's not about filling this void. It's, it's about filling this void. this void. So regardless of your view on the discussion about, you know, what the church initially did uh, to celebrate communion in homes, uh, which remains kind of a question mark, regardless of your view on that debate, we discover in 1 Corinthians 11 there is definitely a difference between Breaking bread and breaking bread. 
our breaking of bread together. It occurs on the Lord's Day in the Lord's house. We do it the first Sunday of each month, but it occurs on the Lord's Day in the Lord's house. Breaking bread at other times occurs at your house. Make the most of it. Get to know one another. Embrace one another. Serve one another uh, and encourage and elevate one another. Even higher than your own self, elevate one another. And I would like all of us to be comfortable meeting in homes day by day. Yeah. Having, having people over to your house, it, it's a great place to express how much you love Christ's church. Love each other. It's a place where you could possibly discover one another's needs. Uh, you might be given an opportunity to meet those needs. And once they are verbalized, I will most likely hear about it as well. Um, I'm confident we will only grow stronger and wiser and larger through increased and improved sharing with one another. Larger, I mean in number, not, not larger. That could happen too. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Gladness and sincerity of heart, it implies they, they, they were just happy. They were unguarded. The New King James Version translates it, simplicity of heart. Keep things simple. They didn't get overly complex. They didn't feel they had to put on the dog. You could just put on some hot dogs. Nobody was sizing one another up. Their motivations for getting together was not, were not calculated. You know, I wonder what this guy's worth. I wonder after dinner, maybe I could sell him some insurance or a used car. Now, folks, that's what the pagan mind does. By comparison, Christians can, can open up, be transparent and unguarded and share our needs. And you know what? That is especially attractive to our unbelieving neighbors. They don't see that elsewhere. Um, we don't have to browbeat them with deep theology. We can show it to them. They can see how we live and how we love Invite a neighbor. It says that they're praising God and having favor with all the people. It, it was Christianity made very attractive in the early church. The conclusion, verse 47, is the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a motive right there. The Lord was adding. But how did he use these early Christians to do it? By breaking bread, house to house, day by day. Healthy churches do the simple things well. Let's pray.